You're listening to the Center for Auto Safety podcast with Executive Director Michael Brooks, Chief Engineer Fred Perkins, and hosted by Anthony Simino. For over 50 years, the Center for Auto Safety has been working to make cars safer. Find out more at autosafety.org. I'm getting bombarded by local folks and national folks on the ARC recall. Hey. Or whatever that is. Well, um, listeners, your support goes to help Michael being bombarded. Yeah, I started the show already. That's okay. We can always cut the first part out. Could, but I won't. Uh, so <laughs> the very well, first part I will cut out. The very first. <laughs> let's see. Anyway, so uh, listeners, hey, welcome back for another exciting episode of There Ought to Be a Law. Hey, what do you guys think of that as a title? There. I love it. That's great. I'm not really there asking you, Fred. I'm asking our listeners. Hey, I'm listen. listening. I'm listening. Hey, what? Because look, let's be honest here. The name, the Center for Auto Safety Podcast, not that exciting. I mean, it's to the point. It's straight. It's like generic. Um, but how about their auto? A U T O be a law? Huh? 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 That's huh? great. I, I admire your enthusiasm. Just saying it. It fairly rolls <laughs> off your tongue. I don't know if I'm enthusiastic about it. I mean, I, I yeah, anything's better. But anyway, um, we've got another uh, big airbag recall news. Now, you've all heard us talk about the Dakota airbag situation where, unfortunately, these things will explode and launch shrapnel into the driver's face, the passenger's face. Well, there's another big one um, that NHTSA was investigating for eight years. Is that right? Eight years? And they finally yep. came around to uh, last Friday – uh, recall demand of about 67 million airbag inflators supplied by ARC Automotive, ARC Automotive. Um, these were put in at least 12 car uh, OEMs use these, including GM, Volkswagen, Hyundai, uh, dating back to the early 2000s. Until last Friday, automakers had conducted seven limited recalls covering about 6,400 vehicles. But now it's every single one made by this company here and this sounds a lot like to me like the Takata situation where their inflator cartridges are exploding in people's faces is this the same issue it's it's not and i'm, I'm trying to be really clear about that because um in the Takata situation what you had was a design defect fundamentally that if all of the airbags weren't remedied the chances of them, um, the inflators exploding, increase significantly over time due to exposure to environmental conditions, generally uh, high absolute humidities and temperatures. Um, and and that's kind of a design defect. They didn't they they did not design the the propellant or the housing for the propellant to take account uh, take into account those environmental changes over time. In the ARC situation, the prevailing theory, ARC actually still denies this theory based on their testing, but the theory that NHTSA has put out for the defect is that there's some welding slag or welding flash, they call it both uh, interchangeably, it seems, that remains inside of the inflator housing after the... Um, manufacturer of the inflators and before they're installed in vehicles and what that slag or flash does is essentially clogs the outlet 
port or hole that goes to the actual airbag. So all of that pressurized gas is flowing out of the inflator into the airbag to inflate it and hopefully save someone's life. But it doesn't, you know, this slag or whatever it is, flash is not present in every single one of those 67 million airbags that we know of. Um, it appears that they eliminated that that problem in 2018. They did a you know a change of process in their manufacturing where they use a bore scope. I assume that's something like they use when you get a colonoscopy that they stick inside of the inflator to make sure there's no leftover junk in there before final assembly, um, so that it avoids this issue of possible debris or whatever preventing the airbag from deploying properly and functionally turning into a, a bomb. Um, so it's, it's, it's a manufacturing defect. I mean, this is, you know, the kind of thing you wonder, does it happen, you know, on late Friday afternoon when workers are ready to go home for the weekend and aren't being as careful about their process? Is it, you know, a manufacturing defect in the sense that there weren't enough controls and put in place and, the art facilities to be sure that you know these inflators were were clean before final assembly, but they, so it's very different than Takata. We we don't have any indication that the risk of this defect appearing rises as the vehicles get older, um, okay. which was a significant concern at Takata. In Takata, if nothing had been done in 2015 moving forward, we would probably be seeing hundreds of deaths per year at this point. Because the Honda airbags that we've seen are the oldest in the Takata uh, recall. Uh, the NHTSA's administrator uh, about three or four months ago said, you know, there is a 50% chance of this condition occurring in crashes involving those vehicles, which is a significant rise from you know the 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 very limited number of incidents we saw even in Takata. You know we've seen thirty deaths, a little more over thirty deaths worldwide um, in the Takata situation, and that number I believe would have been extremely higher, significantly higher, um, if NHTSA hadn't stepped in and forced a recall. The, the the odd thing in the in the uh, in this circumstance also I think it's important to talk about the the recall process. So NHTSA has made a recall request. They've been investigating this for almost eight years. There was a lot revealed in the documents passed back and forth from NHTSA. NHTSA is basically they had kind of a task force between the manufacturers, NHTSA and ARC that has been studying this issue, taking airbags out of circulation, seeing if they have the defect for many years now. And um, according to ARC, they really don't see a pattern that allows them to call this a defect. NHTSA disagrees. Uh, NHTSA issued a recall request. That's kind of the first informal step in the recall process. Um, NHTSA still has to do an initial defect determination. That is essentially where they lay out the engineering argument for a defect in these inflators. And at that point, there could be a public hearing. ARC has a chance to defend itself. And then after that, uh, the DOTs, I believe this goes up to the Secretary Pete's level, has to make a uh, you know a final defect finding 
defect determination that essentially forces the manufacturer to do the recall unless the manufacturer wants to take it to court and challenge that decision, which, you know, given the resistance to, you know, a recall that ARC has displayed, um, that might be possible. Um, and they've also presented some, you know, legal arguments to suggest that because they're not a, you know, they're not the final stage vehicle manufacturer and nor do they consider themselves an equipment manufacturer. I think that's arguable um, that they aren't even subject to NHTSA's recall authority. Um, so that's a that's an interesting argument. And, um, you know, because vehicles in their final shape and form, the manufacturer has the responsibility to recall those vehicles. You know, they're they're That is an argument that I that I see them making. uh long term i mean it, it, it's not and it's it's kind of very technical and it doesn't make a lot of sense on the service on the surface but you know perhaps that's an argument that works for them long term but what's important in that situation is that the manufacturers here have i think there have been seven recalls around this issue mainly they were doing recalls of the batches of inflators that they saw actual events take place in so someone had an inflator explode in michigan in 2009 they went and recalled that batch of airbags or airbag inflators um and so they were doing small recalls to address these what they they are perceiving as a you know manufacturing defect that occurred in certain batches there were certain batches that potentially had this welding issue but they weren't willing to say this whole population of 60 million air 67 million airbags was defective. So um, concurrent with NHTSA releasing this information last Friday, GM announced a recall of almost a million vehicles containing these airbags. Um, and that's what I think we expect to happen over the next few weeks, maybe months. Um, even if NHTSA does not continue its process to a defect determination, I think they probably will, but we just don't know. Arc and um, the other manufacturers, because NHTSA has done a recall request, these are rare, and I, I want to highlight that too. It's exceedingly rare for NHTSA to make a formal, or even a, 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 it's not even formal, it's informal recall request and make that public. That happens, you know, that happened in Takata, it's happened maybe once every two to three years throughout NHTSA's history. So you have many years where there may be a, almost a thousand recalls and not a single one of them was requested in this way by NHTSA. Um, typically, it occurs when a manufacturer has shown signs of resistance to a recall. So this is a rare circumstance. And um, I think what we're going to see next are manufacturers start to step up to the plate and recall these things um voluntarily i you know i don't know what that means for arc i don't know if they're fighting you know like in takata takata went bankrupt it's really hard you know when almost every product you've made for the past 20 years is recalled to survive that kind of um event and i i don't know if you know if gm recalls these airbags if arc then has to manufacture new airbags for gm gm has to pay them for those new airbags a lot of that stuff is are things that are hidden in contracts we'll never see. But it's a very interesting situation and something that, you know, since these airbags are all over America right now, I mean, we there are at least 30 
three, 34 million vehicles that have them. If they're in the passenger and driver sides, we're not sure the number may be higher, maybe 40, 50 million vehicles. Um, that's another issue. No one knows yet which vehicles are actually covered, which vehicles actually have these airbags in it. Um, and that's something we think NHTSA needs to, you know, let consumers know if they even know yet. Um, so that's it in a very large <laughs> nutshell. <laughs> that's a, a very, very large nutshell that left me with a, a bunch of questions here. Okay. So as a consumer, if I have one of these things, I just have to wait and hope that my, my car manufacturer does a voluntary recall. So like what you're yeah. saying GM is doing right now, they've uh, alerted uh, 1 million owners that, Hey, here's a voluntary recall. We're fixing this. Okay. Right. And that was GM's recall was a voluntary recall of a million vehicles, including one model. Um, I want to say it's a Chevy Traverse that had three of the eight incidents that have occurred in America take place, I believe. Okay. So they, there's a semi pattern there and GM is coming in and saying, yeah, okay, we're going to go ahead and do this recall. Okay. Um, this is going to sound awful, but it, it says, okay, this is an eight year investigation, two deaths, eight injuries out of 64 million airbags. That sounds really low to me. Like is like, what's the threshold for, for uh, putting some sort of recall on it. Is it, is it one injury? Is it one death? Is it, where's the, where's there the is problem? no concrete threshold. Um, okay. Well, historically what's yeah. And historically uh -huh. there's not either there, there, you know, we've seen manufacturers do recalls where there were zero, uh, really zero incidents and certainly seen manufacturers do recalls where there were no injuries and certainly no fatalities. So from a manufacturer standpoint, you know, it's kind of all over the place. When NHTSA typically, NHTSA, this is probably, I would have to guess, out of all of the recall requests NHTSA's put out there, this is probably the one with the least amount of deaths and injuries involved. But is this um, publicly known deaths and injuries? Like when yeah, I look at this, is this, like, can well, I increase this by a factor of 10? In this situation, I there is some pretty... ARC is reporting deaths and injuries and events, uh, ARC and the manufacturers, because ARC's not going to hear about all these things. They're going to come from manufacturers, from lawyers, and that sort of thing. So all of these events are probably being reported in that. So this doesn't really fall into what we see in other areas where manufacturers are settling cases out of court and the public ne never hears about a defect. There have been so much attention on these, and this has been so engaged that we we have a pretty good idea of um, when and where these incidents are occurring. So it's yes, it is a low number, and that is part of the big challenge here. It is a low number, and like I said, this is probably not like Takata, where we're looking at a growing risk. Okay. Um, so it's you know. ARC has resisted. They've essentially refused to do a recall. That's even rarer than a recall request. So we're, we're at this point, we're kind of in wait and see mode. Are the manufacturers going to step up at the plate and say, you know what, we're just going to get this over with and we know a recall is coming rather than fight it and spend all this money. And the big part here is owners who are going to be approaching their manufacturers saying, what the hell do I have this airbag in my Hi. car? is the first question. None of us really know. I think if you look at the vehicles that NHTSA um, has listed as part of the investigation, uh, you only get to a few million out of the 
you know, 30 to 40 million vehicles that might be involved. So no one knows right now, uh, other than the manufacturers, which vehicles they install these airbags in. So that's an important step in, in, in being transparent with the public, letting them know, hey, we might be at risk. But even then, people, and, and we saw this a lot in Takata, people don't like the idea, obviously, of driving around with a bomb right in front of their chest. And it's, you know, it, they, they face a lot of customer blowback um, if they refuse to to do these recalls. So it's it's certainly interesting in light of the low number of incidents. Um, it's going to be, you know, it looks like it might be a long road ahead if if the manufacturers refuse to perform these recalls and this is forced to take further action. Um, but if the manufacturers kind of recognize that this problem might get out of hand, they could step in and do the recalls at any moment, really. Well, I see the big benefit of this voluntary recall of being now the manufacturers can't claim that they didn't know this is a problem. Like they can't be in that situation where like we didn't know this would happen. Somebody else made this. La la la, our head was in the sand. So right. now we're all kind of put on notice saying, Hey, there's a potential problem here. You should check your inventory, yeah. check what you built. Okay. And, that, and it's a tough decision, right? For some manufacturers that don't even have an incident yet reported. Right. But uh, I'm sure with Takata, the same sort of thing happened. Right. I mean, they're saying, you know, we've got this. Yeah, because most of the initial Takata and a lot of the Takata ones are our Hondas and uh, some Fords. So, you know, it's it's a tough decision from them. Um, from that standpoint, some of these vehicles are literally, I think the oldest we've seen is a model year 2000. So you're talking about a 23, 20, almost 24-year-old vehicle that hasn't none of their fleet has had any of these issues and um you know frankly they can make an argument when with vehicles that old that, that the the a recall might not apply because there is somewhat of a statute of limitations on recalls at 15 years so i don't know what's going to happen here it, it, what do you think anthony <laughs> I, I think fred has some comments he wants to add <laughs> Yeah, I, uh, this is particularly reprehensible because ARC, also known as Atlantic Research Corporation, has long been in the business of providing similar devices to the military. There is no way that this device, if it had been put through the qualification process for a military analog, would have ever passed. There's too much junk in it. The standards that it's holding the inflators to are nothing like what it would be required for a military or commercial application in other venues. Um, so it's apparent that ARC went out of its way to develop a process to produce substandard inflators that it then exported to a lot of other companies who are building these inflators under license to ARC. So it's pretty insidious that they've developed a substandard inflation inflator development process that they've exported around the world to various manufacturers that leave the public at risk. Uh, this is really a, you know, why would they do that? Why would they drop their standards, produce crap and then sell it? This is, this, this is really inexcusable in my opinion. Takata was inexcusable, too, because they, too, didn't qualify their inflators under environmental conditions that are representative of aging. There, there are things called um, accelerated aging processes and accelerated aging, aging tests you can do. 
But both of these problems go back to the fundamental problem, which is that NHTSA does not require adequate qualification of airbag inflators before they're put in vehicles. All of these inflators can potentially have catastrophic failures, which can injure people who are in front of the inflators. There absolutely should be a qualification process. These standards have been developed by the military over a long time. They're readily available. I uh, don't understand why NHTSA and anyone else in the Department of Transportation hasn't taken this step to make sure that the equipment being put in cars is safe for the occupants. I like that. Let's all get on NHTSA's case and, and standardize this. I mean, you guys told me this, like, I think one of the first episodes where the inflators, they can use anything they want. Um, still surprising to me. So yeah. consumers, uh, pay attention to your emails and mail from your car manufacturer and do not ignore any notice you get on a recall notice. Like they're, uh, you know, don't don't make the mistake that unfortunately too many Takata airbag owners have and just throw these things out and get contacted 20, 30, 40 times. Um, really, this is I, I'm sure as time will show that this, they will not be charging you, the consumer, to fix this defect. I mean, I don't I can't guarantee that. But based on past performance, something, something, something anyway. Yeah. And there was one more little note on this. You know, I, I noticed there was a Wall Street Journal article that was evaluating the um, NHTSA investigation timing and, and how long investigations take. And, and you know, right. NHTSA was years. Yeah. And this was an eight year investigation. And, you know, if you read through what they were doing and you and, and, and you know, when you look at this situation, it, it's going it's going to take a lot of investigation because it's very complex. There are very low number of incidents. It's you know, it's it's kind of an edge case. It's a tough one. And I, I think that should be clear. So NHTSA, you know, in, as part of that article in the Wall Street Journal, you know, they interviewed the administrator, previous administrator of NHTSA, who just recently left. And he, you know, said, you know, NHTSA doesn't have the funds. He made it very clear. And that's something that you'll hear us say a lot on this podcast, um, that NHTSA doesn't have enough money to conduct the type of broad scale technical investigations it needs to do in these situations. Um, and that's something that Congress needs to address. I, I believe that NHTSA's budget has been artificial, artificially kept low for many years by pressure from the industry, starting around the time of Ronald Reagan. So there's certainly an issue there. And as we see more software dumped into cars, autonomous vehicles, crash avoidance systems, and all this other mess, then NHTSA is going to need significantly more resources um, I won't get into how little money they get per per life loss compared to the FAA, but you can find those numbers online quickly, and they're astounding. It's literally astounding how little money NHTSA gets to carry out safety investigations and research and enforcement. For those of you keeping score at home, uh, that is one vote NHTSA needs regulations, another vote that NHTSA needs more funding. Know who also needs more funding? Us. We do. Go to autosafety.org, click donate, donate, donate. And because if you don't, I can turn this entire episode into a month-long NPR PBS pledge drive episode. And if you tune in now, we will send you a tote bag. And you love when we play the Boston Pops. It's <laughs> much fun. Oh, coming up, we'll be in the Berkshires doing something else that 
no one cares about. Sorry. Okay. Maybe, you know, I haven't been to the Berkshires. They look lovely. I, I think one of our colleagues might live close relatively to the Berkshires. I won't out you, Fred. Um, but, you know, fund the Center for Auto Safety. A lot of you are stepping up. It's amazing. This organization has been around for 300 years. Okay. Close 40, 50 years, 50 years, 53, 53 years. Oh my God. It's older than Google people. Click, so donate, subscribe, tell your friends. And speaking of fun software, let's go into our latest update on Tesla. So Tesla has this thing called full self-driving. It is not full self-driving, people. Please do not believe it. And there's a lovely article, which we'll link to from Ars Technica. Um, and it talks about their full self-driving. Hey, look, it identifies pedestrians. So in the Teslas, they have this little screen where you can see this kind of graphic presentation of, hey, I can identify a car. I can identify a stop sign. And in this update, I can identify a pedestrian. And so what does it do is a pedestrian is going through a crosswalk with a sign in the crosswalk that says vehicles must yield to pedestrians. For those of you unsure what yield is, like the person who cut me off two days ago, uh, stop. Essentially, stop. They, they, the, the pedestrians have the right of way in this, in this instance. But the Tesla fanboys, for lack of a better term, uh, said, this is one of the most exciting things I've seen on Tesla full stop driving 11.4.1. Uh, this is a 11.4.1. Oh, my God. It detected the pedestrian, but rather than slamming on the brakes, it just proceeded through like a human would, knowing there was enough time to do so. No, fanboy, what you just said is, hey... Rather than obey the traffic laws, it just said, nah, and went right through that. If only somebody put together like a consumer bill of automated vehicle rights, you could see that perhaps these vehicles should be paying attention to traffic laws. But I don't know who would do such things. I so can't imagine. What do you, do, do, I don't know. Somebody should get on that right away. What do you think? <laughs> I think I think that's a good idea. Yeah, um, I mean it's 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 a little concerning when you see people cheering on a vehicle that's ignoring pedestrians and crosswalks and yeah. saying things like "This is brave of Tesla." I mean, I think the I think the guy who who's doing that is that whole Mars catalog guy who just wants to be Elon's best friend. So uh, we, we I mean it, it's absurd. They should be stopping for people in crosswalks. That's state law. You're violating state law. It's just as bad as rolling through stop signs. You should be. It should be recalled, right? Well, I, I you know, the, paraphrasing this guy's comment a little bit. This is great. The car is as bad a driver as I am. This is fantastic. <laughs> exactly. And the thing is, I've seen, I, I've seen in a beach town in New Jersey where they have the exact same things. These crosswalks must yield um, for pedestrians. Or actually, I think it says theirs it must stop. Um, and I watched someone drive through people doing that and a cop on a bicycle got in front of the car and is like out now over to the side and like ticketed them, which is great. So if you're going to violate a law that you get pulled over by a cop on a bicycle, like, you know, your software isn't isn't quite ready for prime time, folks. Um, in, in other Tesla news, uh, and this is this is one that I, I think is going to become a bigger issue as more electric vehicles go on the road. Yeah. Tesla is recalling. Uh, uh, millions of vehicles in China uh, due to reduce the risk of collisions caused by drivers mistakenly stepping on the accelerator for an extended period. Um, so this is an issue. So with electronic vehicles, maybe you guys can explain this. There's something called uh, one pedal driving. Yeah. Essentially you use the accelerator. And when you 
back off the accelerator, um, brakes are essentially applied. And I believe right. it's something the GM invented it's called regenerative braking. And so when you do that, it recaptures energy and helps charge right. the battery, which right. from an engineering point of view is brilliant. Absolutely. Like a, a brilliant idea. It's like if I had, I remember I had a toy train set as a kid and it just had a throttle and you pulled back, you could feel the electrical charge go back. Maybe this thing wasn't grounded and wasn't really safe. I should not have felt that charge. Uh, but so Tesla has to recall all these vehicles because it sounds like people can't handle regenerative braking. And I'm not, this is not a critique because I, I think this is confusing for people. I think it is too. And, and, you know, there's some confusion as to whether this is a recall or not. I, I'm pretty sure that the, the recall that just occurred in China was a feature update in the United States. I mean, it was basically <laughs> an update that allowed Tesla drivers to change the, um, like the level of the regenerative braking so that it was, you know, basically when you let off of the accelerator, it slows down slow, it slows down medium, it or it can slow down really quickly, depending on what your settings are. And depending on that setting, you will get more power back into the battery. So it's something that I believe was announced as coming to Tesla vehicles in March or April in the United States. So I'm, I'm, I, I, it, it appeared that there was some type of concern on the part of the Chinese authorities that the one pedal, that, that there's some kind of, people have a cognitive problem uh, performing one pedal driving that sometimes results in them hitting the accelerator instead of the brake. Um, and that might be behind the, the, the kind of the, the, the sudden acceleration uh, events or that we see in Tesla's where there've been a lot, a lot of those reported in the United States as well. So well, um, let, me, let me jump in here. The one pedal braking is typically limited to a specific deceleration rate, like uh, typically something like 0.2 G's. So what could easily happen is somebody takes their foot off the, the pedal and they are approaching a car in front of them more rapidly than they think is exactly the way they ought to be doing. And they say, holy crap, I got to, you know, so they stamp on the, they stamp on the pedal, which their foot happens to be close to. And that happens to be the accelerator pedal, you know, uh, uh, free advice to Tesla and everybody else in this business. The proper way to do this is since you have a big computer in the car and you have a hydraulic braking system, the proper way is for the system to monitor the pressure in the brake after a person applies their foot to it and for the computer to make the determination whether or not you can use regenerative braking to achieve the deceleration objective of the human being e.g not crashing into the car in front of them and then supplementing switching over to hydraulic braking when needed this would be completely seamless to the user and it would also should we patent this michael i, I mean i love this uh, I don't know. Let's this, do a search. <laughs> but there's an easy fix that would keep people, uh, as traditionally drivers do, using a different foot position to accelerate from decelerate. And I think that's the fundamental problem here. Well, Fred, can you w walk us kind of through how this works a little bit? Because right now in my car, I have a gas pedal. It actually feeds gas into the engine, I assume, and a brake pedal, which, you know, it slamps 
Fred Flintstone's feet on the floor. Um, and so right now when I'm driving and like, I, I'll take my foot off of the gas and just kind of hovered above it. Cause I know I'm coasting or I don't know if I technically am coasting. I've just, I've reached enough speed. I don't have to hold the accelerator now. I'm going down a large hill where I can hover it over the brake. Now with an electric vehicle, if I'm not applying pressure, is it applying brake power? Like how does this work? Yeah, that's the way this is configured. So the, the electric motor driving the car can also be used as a generator. A motor looks a lot like a generator if you look at them. They're both, you know, a metal case with a rotor inside and different things happening. These machines are designed to be used as regenerative braking. And don't you hate it when engineers split hairs? But Michael, it doesn't store power, it stores energy. Anyway, we'll we'll put that aside. He so insult him because he went to law school. Come on. So uh, yeah, we like him anyway. <laughs> So what happens is if you take your foot off the accelerator, the car says, okay, clearly you want me to either maintain the speed that you got set in your cruise control, or you want me to decelerate, right? And so it's got all these inputs. It's looking out the front of the window saying, well, there's a car in front of me. I suppose I should decelerate. And the owner's, the friendly owner's foot is not on the pedal forcing me to go forward. So I'll go ahead and slow down at a certain governed rate. And, you know, things should be just fine. And they probably are fine unless the the, the person gets scared. Is that, is that on point? No, yeah, I think so. So I guess my scenario of, of right now in my, my gasoline-powered car, I'm going down a large incline. I take my foot off the accelerator, and the car will still keep speeding up. It will, and I, and I'm expecting this as a driver because I've been driving for more than a couple of weeks, and I, I'm used to certain things. And if I go to an electric vehicle and I assume I'm going down a hill, I don't have to keep applying power um, or feeding energy or whatever nerd term you want to use. If I, take, <laughs> <laughs> if I take my foot off the accelerator, will the car continue to coast like it will in my gas powered car or no, it's going to start slowing down? Well, I think there is no standard answer for that. My guess is that if you have the cruise control set, it will begin to decelerate because well, not, it doesn't want to exceed control. the speed. Yeah, if not cruise control, just normal. Yeah, if, you, if you're just normal and you've got a normal car, it's going to just continue to speed up as you go down the hill. Sure. Okay. But it, so I, if I take my foot off, it won't start doing the regenerative braking or... Well, if you have if you have a normal car, you don't have regenerative well, braking. No, no, sorry, with with an electric vehicle. If I that's the scenario. So, because as people transition to electric vehicles, it's this type of thing. I think people need a little training on. Like, I, I mean, I, it took me three years to having a new car to understand what certain functions in the car do, and I read the manual. Like, it it seems like there's a bit of a learning curve to an electric vehicle with this one pedal driving type situation. And right. Uh, there certainly is. And it's stupid. Nobody should ever have to do this. What you the, the design should rather than have a button a glowing button that says, isn't this cool? <laughs> it should be designed so that the human being has to do what they've always done, which is just to put their foot in the brake pedal. They can have more efficient braking if the car is designed to use regenerative braking to supplement the hydraulic braking, uh, which would be an easy fix and you know, something that, that could be done and should be done. Um, my opinion, for what it's worth, is that 
nobody should have to retrain themselves to get in and drive an electric car. They should be able to use what they've done forever, driving their vehicle safely and continue to do what they've done forever to drive safely in an electric vehicle, my opinion. So listeners, those of you who've switched to an electric vehicle or have one, uh, let us know like what was what was that learning curve for you? Or if you were like, wait, I have regenerative braking? What's that? Is do I have to go see my doctor? Um, you know, let us know like what that transition was like. Uh, because I, I, yeah, I, with so much, I feel like I'm such a get off my lawn type rant right now, but there's so many features inside modern cars, which I, I don't know what's happening in them. And, uh, so I, I think this is just another thing where, you know, you get into the situation where people unnecessary accidents and one more, one more point on this. I, I'm sorry. I beg your pardon for the apologize. interruption. Go right ahead, please. But one more point. My first experience driving was in a one pedal vehicle. It was in Nantasket Beach uh, near Boston when I was about four years old. And we had an, an outing there and my mother put me in the bumper cars, which had one pedal uh, control and said, go have a good time. <laughs> so I went out there and uh, because I was four years old, people started to gleefully bash my car from all directions. <laughs> and uh, I started to cry and Eventually, I got out of there with many tears on my face. And this is why I never became an F1 driver. <laughs> thus, thus started the felonious path. Yeah, this is what led. During this entire story, listeners, Fred was scratching the top of his head. I think he was reliving kind of some sort of his cranial injury. <laughs> I'm, still, I'm still traumatized by that. So mothers out there, don't put your kids inside bumper cars because they wind up working with the Center for Auto Safety as adults. All right. <laughs> um, so listeners, look, I think Fred had a great idea and we should patent what he was talking about. But patents are really, really expensive to get. And if you donate, you can get us one step further to maybe possibly perhaps really not ever doing a patent on this uh, but you'll help us and uh, you know and, and it'll pay for fred's therapy for his traumatic brain injury caused by a bumper car speaking of the problems of modern cars don't you think touchscreens suck i do oh my god i have to hit buttons multiple times i'm i'm gonna get into a crash just to spite the touchscreen in my car because it's always like dismiss this, dismiss that. It's covering up my map and me playing Angry Birds while I drive. Okay, it's covering up a map. I'm not playing Angry Birds. Uh, but hey, we're not, I'm not the only person. And Michael, who's nodding on screen with me, who's not the only person who think touchscreens suck. Buttons are coming back. Um, consumers have been getting a little annoyed. Hey, I like a button, a good old fashioned button in cars. So it looks like um uh wait it oh uh, where did it go anyway it looks like buttons are coming back somebody jump in so this kind of goes back a little to fred's point about you know building cars to to let humans do the things they've always done to do things like turn the lights air conditioner radio um when we're talking about braking it's it's a it's in this the safety issue here um, isn't you know braking and acceleration? It is driver distraction. Um, touch screens simply distract drivers more than buttons and knobs in places where we can, you know, become accustomed to where they are and hit them without even glancing away from the road. 
Um, touch screens don't really work the same way. And, you know, a, a number of studies have found uh, over the years that they probably present a, a distracted driving risk that we need to be aware of moving forward in vehicle design. Um, we also know that manufacturers are love touch screens because they're cheaper it doesn't require the wiring to every button that goes into the car it requires basically a central command unit from which those 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 things are carried out so it's cheaper for manufacturers so they probably prefer the touch screen approach um and so it's interesting that they're pulling back from that and i think it's really really because this is the number one thing that consumers hate about modern cars um, I think Consumer Reports did a large look at this uh, a year or two ago, and it's just something people can't get accustomed to and really don't like. Um, so some manufacturers are pulling back from it, which is probably a good thing um, when it comes to driving and distraction. But there are obviously other manufacturers who are going forward fully into this new new world of screens where your entire uh, control system is going to be, you know, everything in front of you is going to be a screen that you'll have to somehow interpret and figure out. And, you know, that's that poses issues, just like the one pedal driving in region braking, we're having to basically retrain people how to drive and no one is retraining them. They're just buying these cars and hopping in them and going. Yep. So that's a problem. With the, the touchscreen now, uh, so I'll use Google Android Auto, Android Auto, that's what it's called. And I plug my phone into my car and it's great. I get a map on a screen, which I love, but then it also has these row of icons underneath it. And I got to play, guess that icon, which app is this associated with? And hey, where did my music app go? Why is it replaced with some other app? Yeah, it's yeah. A, it's a nightmare. So I've I've actually started using the whole voice commands, um, which actually works surprisingly well. Um, so yeah, just get rid of buttons, yeah. man. Just we just talk to the car. Yeah. Hey, Fred, you still there? I know you. Yes, I'm requesting permission to rant. Okay. Oh, oh, I wasn't going to go into the tower. I was going to give you a different rant to go on. Well, this is the oh, okay. So uh, many yeah, rants, yeah, yeah. so little no, time. This is a this is a good rant. So, Fred, let's say I have a Tesla and it catches on fire. How many fire trucks should be following me to put the fire out? You know, how many angels does it take to stand <laughs> on the head of a pin? I'm, if you use new advanced robotic fire trucks, uh, apparently somewhat less than the ten that are traditional. Yeah, so a British company has developed a fire truck to extinguish electric vehicle and car park fires. Although electric vehicles are statistically less likely to catch fire than an internal combustion engine, incidents involving a lithium-ion battery can be far more serious and difficult to extinguish. And so in the past, um, you know, Fred has pointed out that you'll need like 30 fire trucks worth of this stuff, where this company has come along with a... Uh, a fire truck that is designed to fit into car parks um, and uh, a normal size fire truck cannot. Uh, and instead of using water, they're using something called cold cut Cobra, uh, which is a high pressure lance using abrasive suspended in water to pierce a hole through floor plans, floor pans and inject water, water at 300 bar. So here's what I don't understand about this. Uh, it's trying to adapt a manufacturing technology that's well established using high pressure water to, to cut things. Uh, that's how your granite countertop uh, vendor 
cut the granite to fit into your kitchen. So it's been around a long time. What I understand about this is that if you drive a nail through a standard lithium ion battery, it bursts into flames. Yeah. So if you drive a hot water jet through a lithium ion battery, why doesn't it also burst into flames? It seems to me that this has as much prospect for increasing the number of damaged cells if it doesn't happen to hit the one that's that's uh, flaming as it does to extinguish the fire more rapidly. So I I don't know. I this is kind of questionable to me. Typically in a typically in a fire, you know, you don't have the luxury of going through extensive engineering analysis to say exactly, you know, what's happening here. That's usually done post fire. Well, from the article in Fire Apparatus magazine, <laughs> oh, I miss cat fancy. Uh, this water cools directly inside the battery and thus prevents propagation and further possibility of a thermal runaway. Sure. So what are the conditions where this is going to work? The conditions that it's going to work are that you have one cell or a small number of cells that have been damaged and are about ready to cause damage to other cells because they're on fire. Number one, a limited number of cells. Number two, you know exactly where these cells are so that you can hit them and not the other cells. And then number three, uh, you've got to hope that the chemicals that are combusting are going to be, in fact, extinguished by the water jet that you're now pointing at them. Um, I, I hope it works. I think there's a lot of, of, lot of uncertainty between here and there. Yeah, it looked like it was it it looked like it was, you know, it was kind of a cool idea. It was a kind of a short truck so it could fit into garages and parking structures. I you know, I think that's probably I mean, that's been a huge concern in the last couple of years. We've seen a lot more parking garages ban certain vehicles that are under recall or a park outside warning from those garages and you you know, typical fire trucks can't get into these places. They're too high. Uh, so, you know, it's interesting idea and, you know, I'm not sure like Fred, I'm not sure how they discover in that limited amount of time. First of all, these are going to be arriving on scene after these fires have started and begun to propagate. I'm not sure, you know, depending on how long it takes, they may or not, may not arrive to just, you know, other cars and the structure fire. It doesn't, it seems like they would have to be there relatively quickly, um, in order to engage the battery with this water jet before that fire uh, propagated to other cells in the battery. So I, I don't know. I have a lot of questions about it, but, you know, it's we need solutions. And maybe this is somewhere along the way to a solution for this problem. Well, Michael has questions. Brad has questions. If you're a representative of Cold Cut Cobra, we'd love to have you on. I won't use that voice necessarily. I mean, I probably can't help myself. I will use Cold Cut Cobra. Um, but seriously, I think we'd love to find out how this works because we all know this is a problem of thermal runaway. Not thermal runway, as I've said on a previous episode, but thermal runaway. So his vocal cords are warm. He's been stretching. He's got on his tracksuit. He's ready to go. It's time for the Tao of Fred. You've now entered the Tao of Fred. The Consumer AV Bill of Rights, lucky number 13. Is this the final one? Yes, This it is. is the last one, yeah. 
for now. Okay. Well, there may be more. I mean, we're planning to do some work and add things as things come up. So there is no limit on the number of rights that we consumers have when it comes to AVs, right? I said this is the towel, Fred, not the interruptus of Michael. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, This is, yeah, there's no no end to what could happen, but... As we've configured the AV Consumer Bill of Rights, we think it's a minimum set that must be included in every safe vehicle configuration. And this is the last one. Uh, AVs shall not increase the transportation sector environmental burden over their design lifetime. You know, there's a lot of talk about how switching to EVs is going to save the world. Uh, You know, it's going to solve all of our carbon problems and all that sort of stuff. None of this has been established in any kind of uh, firm, well-developed analytical basis. So, you know, just to lay it out there, AVs must plan for safe handling, post-deployment protection of humans and the environment, and end-of-life sequestration or recycling of hazardous chemicals and materials used in AV manufacturing or operation. So just a, just a couple of them to give you a taste of what this is all about. Most of the batteries, maybe all of the batteries, uh, have cobalt in them. And cobalt has lots of uh, problems that are associated with it. Let's see, um, it says here that the National Institutes of Health says, in the mid-1960s, breweries began adding cobalt to beer as a foam stabilizer. Subsequently, heavy beer drinkers began to present with a distinct dilated cardiomyopathic syndrome called beer drinker's cardiomyopathy. So uh, you don't want to get that. There's a lot of other problems associated with it, endocrine problems, uh, abnormal thyroid. The use of EVs is going to increase, dramatically increase the amount of cobalt that is in the environment not to mention the effect on poor people in Africa who are digging this out of the ground in illegal mines and, and legal mines. It's a very it's a very messy, dangerous chemical. Uh, another chemical that's prevalent in batteries is manganese. And manganese is known to cause lots of neurological problems, symptoms very similar to Parkinson's disease and people who have been working with it. Um, again, not a good idea. These are only a sampling of of the kind of chemical problems that are associated with EVs that are really unique to and accelerated by the expanded use of these chemicals, cobalt, manganese, et cetera, in their manufacture. Uh, There are resource limitations around the world that are associated with these as well. Giant mines that are being built to produce lithium. Um, it, it, It must be addressed because it's a in some places an existential problem associated with the the people working on it the other part of this is that avs must not increase vehicle lifetime end-to-end energy consumption compared to conventional vehicles with due consideration of electrical generation distribution conversion and storage efficiencies and the impact of unoccupied operation by AVs. Some people talk about AVs circulating in cities and trying to be the yellow cab of the future. There are very few studies that have shown that the expansion of uh, EVs 
is actually going to reduce the amount of carbon being used, being consumed in, uh, in, as fuel, except in those places where the electric grid is dominated by renewable sources. So the largest market or the, the, the highest market penetration for EVs right now is in Norway. Norway is almost completely um, equipped with hydropower. Got a lot of fjords there, a lot of waterfalls. So hydropower, which is renewable, if you neglect the energy investment in building dams and all that infrastructure, is pretty clean. Norway has not demonstrated any reduction in fossil fuel consumption or uh, any other kind of energy consumption, even though it has a very high penetration of EVs. There is no study that I'm aware of that says in the U.S., energy consumption in any market has gone down because of the conversion to date of vehicles to electric vehicles. You got to remember the fundamentals of this, which is that an electric generating plant, unless it has cogeneration, has about the same thermodynamic efficiency as the engine in your car running at optimum speed. Now, the engine in the car doesn't always run at optimum speed, and that's a problem. That's where the hybrid vehicles come in because they allow you to only run the engine at its optimum speed and use the battery as a buffer so that uh, it becomes much more efficient. And that's, that's really the cause of the mileage improvements due to hybrid car use. If you look at them, you'll see that the highway mileage for those hybrid cars is not too different than the highway mileage for a conventional car. But the city mileage is much, much better simply because the engine's not running except when you really need it to run to recharge the batteries. People kind of fall off the cliff with this and just say, well, I'm, I'm getting an EV, I'm going to save the world. And I'm equipping my fleet with EVs, I'm going to save the world. Well, you know, I, I appreciate the intent and certainly intentions are important, but it may not be the case. And I think it's incumbent on the EV manufacturers to really establish this. Uh, it really established their value as used by human beings in real life. Um, it would have been good to do this before we made a national commitment to EVs, I suppose, but it's never too late to do the right thing. Michael pointed out that uh, another possible implication of this is that the automated vehicles, most of which are EVs or something like EVs, uh, will occasionally stop in the middle of traffic and cause traffic jams that burn up a lot of extra fuel and all of the people whose transportation is being inhibited by these EVs stuck in the highways, stuck in the roads. That's a secondary effect, but certainly something worth considering as part of the overall transportation structure. So that's, uh, that's the story with the uh, AV Consumer Bill of Rights. We've gone through all 13 now. We've gotten feedback from people. Thank you very much for that. We've gotten a lot of great inputs from people. They've helped us improve it. Uh, we really appreciate the opportunity to put these forward, and hopefully they'll become part of the requirements that government and industry realize need to be included in the AV rules and regulations. To date, they are not being included in the standards being developed by the SAE, or the standards being developed by the International Standards Organization. We think um, they should be, and we're, we're pushing for that. You know, I, I think these have all been great, but, you know, 13 is the most depressing of the bunch. 
<laughs> you know, why couldn't the last one, why couldn't end on a high note, like, you know, the big red escape button or something like that? Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm taking the optimist or the, the view that you might say is the naive view and uh, hoping that this pushes more towards a uh, better, better um, uh, electrical infrastructure and everything runs off of dolphin farts and sunshine. Um, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm distracted right now. Michael has taken over our screens just to to shame us with some weird <laughs> stats of who's talking the most. Turns out, it's are, like, are you seeing that? Yeah, I have no yeah, idea. Yeah, I don't know that. how to get it off my screen and go back to actually seeing you guys, which I'd rather see. Yeah, I clicked um, a button and it it really yeah. messed things up here. Way to go! Way to mm -hmm. go! Well, is this time for for yeah, an ancillary yeah. rant? Oh, yes. good time for my rant. Oh, uh, why gonna, not? We're in a doubt. So here's the rant, okay? We've seen this whole uh, autonomous vehicle structure before. And, and uh, gentle listeners, many of you are not of my advanced age, but if you were, you would have recalled from the 1950s a lot of advertisements by General Electric and Westinghouse talking about how atomic energy to produce electric power is going to be too cheap to meter. This is going to be the best thing ever. Um, now, you may have noted that certain uninformed people have said that, well, with AVs, we're going to reduce traffic fatalities by 96%. That's got to be a good thing, right? These these two quotes really, <laughs> really resonate with me because the power too cheap to meter is very similar to the idea that the AVs are going to completely eliminate automotive deaths. They're very attractive and unachievable objectives. Um, and the reality, though, is that the utilities recognized that nuclear reactors were very much, uh, very hazardous, and they presented a hazard that was too great for any utility to absorb. So they had their friends in Congress pass what's called the Price-Anderson Act, which limits the liability of any utility for nuclear events to far below the actual economic cost of those. So, in fact, the taxpayers have to bear the burden of all of the risk that's associated with nuclear reactors. But as far as the utilities are concerned, this is great. Now we got a green light to go ahead and build all these reactors because power is going to be too cheap to meter and everything's going to be wonderful. And we all know kind of where this nuclear industry has ended up, though, right? Neither too cheap to meter nor particularly safe, and it presents very inviting targets for enemies who might want to attack your country if you've been following the news in Ukraine. What the EV industry, the AV industry, is trying to do is establish state laws and federal laws that similarly give them immunity from the risks that are associated with the proliferation of the autonomous vehicles. Now, how is that going to work out? You know, if the model is the nuclear industry, I think we can assume that it won't work out well and that the public will have to assume all of the risks and costs associated with develop, further development of the autonomous vehicles. You know, this, this whole EV infrastructure, upgraded power lines, improved uh, stations for charging, standards that allow one charger to be used by another, uh, standardization of the roads and highways and infrastructure and V2X technology. 
Someone's going to pay for that. And it's going to be you and me if the AV companies are successful working with their friends in Congress to indemnify themselves from both the risks associated with these vehicle operations and the costs associated with the proliferation of these technologies. End of rant. <laughs> Welcome to hear your comment. Uh, stay tuned for Fred and I's separate podcast on the wonders of nuclear power, where I will talk about the religious order needed to protect the waste. Anyway, uh, that's not related to auto safety, but boy, I love a nice glowing stick of cadmium. Cadmium? Cad, cad, is that right? Cadmium? No, is that a plutonium? Or plutonium, too. Sure. Does cadmium glow? Anyone? Kevin doesn't go, but cobalt-60 is actually a, a commonly used radioactive source that's easily generated in nuclear reactors and distributed out to people who might need to have a intense gamma ray source. Ooh, just like just Bruce Banner. So, uh, um, <laughs> okay, so let's go. Uh, we've got a couple minutes left, as if there's actually a time limit. We've got a couple minutes left for your sanity on our own in time for Recall Roundup. Strap in. Time for the recall roundup. Um, we've already covered the General Motors ARC recall. Um, we don't need to go into that one. So we're going to go into one that affects most listeners of this show. Ready? Don't drive your Ferrari. <laughs> this is a great recall because any recall that contains a sentence like this, Ferrari has no reports of any fires, fuel leaks, or other incidences or deaths as a consequence of this issue. Then you know something really fun has happened. Uh, Ferrari of North America is uh, potentially 425 vehicles uh, being recalled for a possible fuel leakage. Um, we talk about Ferrari on this show a lot more than I would suspect. I mean, we had the Ferraris in the limp home mode, uh, the Ferraris that wouldn't stop after they were parked. Uh, you know, you know, not even mention the poor performance of their current F1 team. Well, you know, they keep popping up because they keep screwing up, I guess. But in this case, they've got a fuel line, basically, that makes contact with a protective cover for a high-voltage battery. That doesn't sound safe from the beginning, but I don't think that's really the problem. It's that there's some corrosion taking place because of contact between the two on the fuel line. Fuel line can get a hole in it, and it can catch fire anytime the vehicle's in operation, which is why they're saying... Do not drive these vehicles. These are, um, I mean, that's that's an important distinction. <laughs> They're saying do not drive, you should not drive. I, I um, don't drive my Ferrari. I got my Ferrari solely to get the Ferrari jacket, the Ferrari hat, the Ferrari watch. So, Anthony, don't drive your Ferrari. Um, <laughs> that's a short and sweet of that. But, you know, it's only a few hundred vehicles. Which is, I mean, how many Ferraris do they sell in the U.S. alone? I mean, I buy at least six a year. Yeah, I mean, millions. They're they're all all up and down my street. Um, Actually, sadly, they are. I regularly see them in my neighborhood with a certain celebrity driving them. Uh, yeah, yeah, Tracy Morgan. I see you. Yeah, I was going to guess Tracy Morgan. Tracy yeah. Morgan is is Tracy Morgan plays a role in, in auto safety more than just that, though, because he is. You know, he was hit by a truck that, if it had been equipped with. Um, automatic emergency braking at the time probably would have spared him and his team a lot of injuries and, and problems. So, Tracy, um, Morgan, do you want to come on the show or just give me a ride in your Ferrari? I mean, I literally see you once a week. I love Tracy Morgan. He's hilarious. I don't know. I mean, um, you get that kind of money. What are you doing in my neighborhood? 
<laughs> I'm kidding. You know, that's kind of related to the other recall too, because we've got these um, Jeep Cherokees that have been put a, a do not park indoors warning. Basically, it's a park outside warning. I keep screwing that up. I'm saying do not park indoors. Park outside because it's a recall that is a recall of a recall. So Ooh. Chrysler looked at this issue around 2016, 2015, I believe, and issued a recall for these same vehicles because there was water coming into the electric module, the power module that controls your power lift gate in the rear. And what they did at the time was a fix using what they call a mastic shield, which sounds like a shield, but what I think it really is is just kind of an adhesive that was squeezed into the holes to um, prevent the water from leaking into the module. <laughs> that did not work. It's we're about you know six seven years later, and these vehicles there have been about I think fifty to a hundred fires. It wasn't completely clear from the submission in these vehicles, which is significant number. Um, and basically, the recall didn't work. The problem is Chrysler, even though they've been looking at this closely since early last year, about eighteen months, they still haven't developed the fix. So owners are simply going to have to park their cars outdoors until Chrysler and Jeep can come up with one, Stellantis, whoever they are now. Um, that's, you know, that's a problem. We saw a lot of issues with, the, I think, the Chevy Bolt owners who were recalls were delayed. And, you know, parking garages start telling you, you can't park here. You may not have an outdoor spot to park at your house. Um, there's a lot of issues there and a lot of consumer inconvenience that takes place because of this. And, you know, frankly, you know, Jeep should have gotten it right seven years ago. This isn't, you know, an, an, even though they see, they claim to have spent the last 18 months studying how this occurs. You know, I, I don't think that water getting into a, uh, control module it really takes that much effort. I think they're trying to kind of, pretend that they've been working really hard on this issue um uh, exactly the last 18 months studying why people are buying these cars <laughs> yeah, that's probably <laughs> a better way to do it <laughs> but yeah that's that's uh you know i you know i'm glad there's a recall i just hope that there is you know a fix available soon for all the owners yeah so what happens i recall this and this is a uh, model year 2014 to 2016 jeep cherokees uh, over 130,000 of these. So let's pretend I got one of these. Um, it's recalled. Do I just go to my dealer and be like, hey, put different goo in there? Like, or is now you wait. You wait and wait until they, they tell you what the remedy is. I don't know if the mastic shield remedy is going to be deployed again in a different spot where they found water going through. Uh, they weren't. They didn't provide any details on what the fix might be, and I think that's because they haven't developed one yet. So, um, and they think they, they're pretty clear that they are it is in development. Mm. Um, you know, and what that means can mean a lot of things. We've seen Jeep remedies in development for about two years before, when at least when it came to the Jeep Grand Cherokee fuel tank fires, it took them quite a long time to develop a remedy that didn't even work, which was a bracket under the fuel tank. So we're always kind of on the lookout for Jeep remedies because they are typically attempts to 
kind of fix the problem at the cheapest price point available. Mm-hmm. Mastic Shield, one of the lesser-known Marvel superheroes. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening to another episode of There Ought to Be a Law. Huh? What do we think? There ought to be a law, baby? I don't know. If you've got a better name, please send it in. It'll be great. Um, but for now, it was just another episode of the Center for Auto Safety Podcast brought to you by Globe. Um, or by, brought to you by Mastic Shield. Mm. Mm. Mastic need shielding. This will be a new exhibit in the American Museum of Tort Law. Uh, thanks, listeners. Bye. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Bye-bye. For more information, visit www.autosafety.org.